Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everyone. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as many of us have said already, we are entering into this new year with anticipation. I think that's the right word, Lord, anticipation. We anticipate the Lord because you're already there. You are at the beginning of 2021 and the end because you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. We anticipate you coming again. That's what I long for. I long for the coming of the Lord Jesus, as does all of his true and faithful bride. We long for our wedding day. We long to hear that trumpet sound and for the wedding supper of the Lamb to begin. But until then, Lord, we want to be about our Father's business, just as Jesus was. We have a mission to complete We want to save lost souls, evangelize, and share the good news of the gospel of salvation with those who don't know it. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to this church in 2020 and the years prior. And we thank you in advance because we know you will always be faithful. Lord, now as we commit ourselves to learning more about your character and your son, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart and speak to every individual here about your heart. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Every person in this room has been touched at some point by grief. There's no one who's immune to it. Some have experienced a lot of grief. Some, a rather relatively small amount. But there is one grief that is unique, not only in God's Word, but also in, I, I imagine, all of your experiences I think that there is a uniqueness to the grief of the loss of a child. That is a unique kind of grief that really can't be compared to anything else. My grandfather lost, grandfather and grandmother lost their firstborn son. My mom lost her firstborn son. We were wondering if that might even happen to us when we entered into ministry. The loss of a child is a unique kind of a grief. Second, I imagine, only to that would be the loss of a spouse. Because that hasn't happened to me, I can only go by what I read in the scriptures about that subject and also by what others have told me who've experienced that unique grief. I've heard people say things when they've lost a spouse, things like this. It's like having a limb removed. I also heard one person say, it's like having a limb die that can't be removed. You carry it with you everywhere you go and there's just this deceased part of you that's just there always now i've never experienced anything like that i know that some have here there is so much that god says in his word about these two unique griefs losing a child and losing a spouse and then there's another one that's related to that is when a child loses their parents and becomes orphaned Those three particular griefs God has reserved much in his word about because they seem to be the most vulnerable regardless of where you live on the earth and regardless of what time period you live. This is a vulnerable people group that has a very special place in God's heart. This is what the Lord means when he says, check this out on the screen. You've probably heard this before. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. How many of you have read that before? He saves those who are crushed in spirit or who, whose spirits are crushed. What that word near means, it means that when someone loses a spouse or a child or a child loses their parents, 
they have a unique access, a unique access to, a, to comprehend the very heart and mind of God because God gave His only begotten Son. He watched His Son die. So when someone experiences this unique kind of loss, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a mom or a dad, or the loss of a child, that kind of experience grants a person access to the divine mind and the divine heart that you really can't get anywhere else. I want you to consider just how often God talks about the vulnerable among us. Your next-door neighbors who may be vulnerable, the person sitting next to you who may be in this vulnerable populace. Take a look at how often God talks about this. Psalm 68. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That's how he wants to be known. He's shouting, I want to be known by you as father of the fatherless and protector of widows. That's that's saying something, isn't it? He continues, Exodus 22. This ought to awaken us as to our responsibility to those vulnerable among us. Look at this. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, I may be just imagining this, but does that appear to you that God takes this pretty seriously? It's right there in black and white. Look how else he talks about this. Isaiah 117. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God's heart is with these people groups. Psalm 146, it continues. The Lord watches over the sojourners. That means someone who is continuously traveling and has no home of their own. A sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. There they are again. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And then moving into the New Testament, here's just one example. The brother of Jesus. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit the orphans and the what? In their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is just a handful that I grabbed to show you very clearly that there is a special place in the Father's heart for the vulnerable among us. A very special place in both ancient culture and modern culture. Without a steady source of income and without representation in business matters and legal matters that, look, they pop up. Sometimes things just pop up. And when a widow doesn't have help or when a child doesn't have mom and dad to take care of these things, they are really, truly all alone. And what happens is often... They're vulnerable to exploitation. And they have nothing but God. And they cry out to him for help. And he hears. He hears these cries. Throughout the lineage of Jesus, I just want you to see how important God makes widows especially. Throughout the lineage of Jesus, he points out the the part of the widow in his grand story of redemption when he mentions people like Ruth and Tamar and Bathsheba and even Mary. And then Jesus himself when he was recognized eight days old and he comes to the temple by his parents to be, um, to be recognized and to be uh, dedicated to God, who was it that recognized him? But Anna, a widow, 
And then when Jesus wants to demonstrate and teach about the persistence of prayer among his people, who does he use? A widow. When Jesus wants to give an example about giving, who does he use? A widow and her two mites. God sees fit to constantly use the vulnerable among us to teach us some of the most important principles about his kingdom. So if we won't look at the vulnerable sitting right here, some of you, the vulnerable among us, we are missing some of the most important principles about God's kingdom that are right before our eyes. God has something to say to us through the vulnerable, and especially how we care for the vulnerable among us. He doesn't just put these things in his word so that we'll know that God cares about them. He puts them there so that you and I will care for them. Why? So that they'll come into direct access to the heart of God through you. That's what we're here for. Caring for the vulnerable among us matters a lot to our master. The title for this message is this. Caring for the verifiably vulnerable. Now, that word there, verifiably, should make you go, why did, he, why did he put that in there? Well, it's because the amount of space that Paul dedicates in his first letter to his young protege, Timothy, to the vulnerable, widows especially, is absolutely astonishing. He devotes almost an entire chapter just to widows. But what he says about them really opens our eyes. He's teaching a pastor how a church is supposed to think about their own responsibility to widows and how families are supposed to think about it and how you as individuals are supposed to think about our responsibility toward widows and the vulnerable among us. I want you to see with your own eyes what Paul says to Timothy and you'll know exactly why I put that word in there. Let's read it together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. It's on your screen if you'd like to look at it there or there's a Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow us along in print. Paul says, no uncertain terms here, honor widows who are truly widows. Now you should ask, why, why is that qualifier word there? Truly widows. Keep reading. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is Truly, there it is again. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, well, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Why, I wonder. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. 
So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their own households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, that's a long passage, and here's why we have to go through all of it in one big chunk, because there's bookends there. The first verse I read you, honor those who are truly widows. The last verse, we want to know who truly widows, the true widows are. So everything in between there is about one idea. And you should ask, who are these that are truly widows? Or your translation may say, widows indeed. Who are these? What are the responsibilities that the church has toward these true widows? What are the responsibilities that the family unit have? These are all important questions that we need to get to the bottom of, right? That's why, again, the title shouldn't come as a surprise to you now, Caring for the Verifiably Vulnerable. Paul's charge here to Timothy is nothing new. Jesus charged the church to show charity to everyone. Everyone. It's not a big light bulb moment to anybody in here, is it? In case it is, let me just show you a couple examples where Jesus shows us, look, if you're going to follow me, you have to be somebody who's regularly charitable. Take a look. Matthew 5. All Jesus speaking here. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Luke 12. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Pretty clear, right? One more. Jesus was at a party, and look what he said while he was at the party. Luke 14. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Now, if he was to continue, what's, what people group is he isolating there? The vulnerable, living among them, right? He could very easily have continued on and on and said, and the orphans and the widows and all those who can't repay you, right? Because look how he finishes. And you will be blessed. And you should go, why exactly will I be blessed if I invite all these vulnerable people to my house? Because they cannot, what? Because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, who's going to repay you? Say it. God, Jesus, he'll repay you. And that's going to be a far greater repayment, don't you think? Look at the vulnerable that he points out there. It's really not a big surprise to learn that Christ tells us to be charitable, right? But when we take this, here's what I want you to do. Take what you just read that Jesus said about showing charity to the vulnerable. And then take that long passage that Paul wrote to Timothy and put them together. And what we come out with is a far more robust, bust main idea of what the whole counsel of God teaches about the responsibilities or the charges that Christ gives to his church. Here's that main idea. I did all the legwork for you and wrote it down in a very easy to remember way. Here it is, the big idea for the whole sermon. Christ has charged his church to be charitable to the verifiably vulnerable. When you put together what Jesus said with what Paul said, that's what you're going to come away with. Every local congregation, please hear me. This is our privilege, our joy to be the hands and feet of Jesus. When someone comes to you and they need a cold cup of water, I hope they come to me. I want to give it to them. I don't care who they are. 
I want to give because Christ has given to us, me, you. It should be a desire. You should look at it as a privilege to do these things. And yet, here's what you all know deep down within your heart of hearts. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world and there are those among, living among us who would constantly seek to abuse the charity of God and to abuse your charity. And so, there were people who snuck in, crept into the church because they knew it was a place where they could get free stuff. Having no interest whatsoever in God, in His Christ, in nothing like that. They just knew this was a place where I could get free stuff. And so they would take advantage of the church in a way that God never had designed for the church to be taken advantage of. And so Paul is telling Timothy that the vulnerable in the church must be verified so that they know how they are supposed to be cared for by the church. I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but in that big chunk that I read to you, there were three different roles of responsibility right there that popped out. Here they are up on the screen. First, the church. They were mentioned there. Then the family. And then the individual. Caring for the vulnerable among us is a shared responsibility. Every one of these three entities has a responsibility to care for the vulnerable. You need to know what exactly is my responsibility. What is the church's responsibility? What's my family's responsibility to care for widows and the other vulnerable? Don't you want to know that? If you want to do what's right in the eyes of Jesus, you've got to know this. That's why there's almost a whole chapter devoted to it. You should ask a couple different questions before we look at this more closely. Number one, is it the church's responsibility to serve the needs of every person who walks in off the street? Now, I want you to not, don't just think of the church in Beach Haven, New Jersey, where we are. Think of a little church plant in India. Is it that little tiny church plant who just launched their new church last week? Is it their responsibility to serve the needs of every person who is vulnerable who walks in off the street? If so, that church is going to make it about um, one week. And all of their resources will be depleted, and there will be none for the widows who actually attend that church. So what is the church's responsibility to people walking in off the street? Isn't that a good question? Shouldn't we have something down in writing about how we should handle this, don't you think? Next question. What about your family? What is your family's responsibility when someone becomes vulnerable? Like a widow. What's your responsibility to mom and dad who are older? When their spouse dies, are you responsible for them? Should you invite them to come live in your house? What are the responsibilities in the sight of God? Don't you want to know that? It's right here in this passage. Second, individuals. What is the individual's responsibility? When they become vulnerable, are they free to just live off institutions all of their life? Free to just absorb all of the resources from an institution because it's available? Oh, those are good relevant questions in our day and age, aren't they? It's all right here in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. And usually, I don't know about you, but when I read through this when I was a kid, I sped through it. It's all about widows. My goodness, there's so much relative stuff in this chapter. I hope I've wet your whistle at least a little bit. 
I want to go through each one of these responsibilities because hear me out. There's coming a day where you are going to be asked to meet the needs of someone in your family. The financial needs. You need to know what is my responsibility in the sight of God toward my needy family members when they can no longer provide for themselves. What is my responsibility before God? What role does the church serve in helping my needy family members when I can't do it anymore? What's the relationship supposed to be here? Here they are. I want you to see it right from the beginning of what these roles are. The church serves those who are on their own. Three little words are going to separate the responsibilities. The church serves those who are truly on their own. They have no one but God. The family serves those who are of their own. And the individual, well, they serve Christ who is their own. The individual who is truly vulnerable, they only have one possession. Do you know what that one possession is? Give you a hint. It's written right there. Say it. That's it. These are the three responsibilities. Now let me unpack this a bit for you because there's going to be lots of questions that are going to pop up. So I hope you'll come to Wednesday Bible study with your list of questions that have arisen during this sermon. Agreed? I couldn't possibly do a complete treatment of everything the Bible has to say about this subject. But I'm going to do my best. Beginning with role number one, the church's responsibility. The church serves those who are on their own. Truly, they have nobody but God. You'll see this right here in verses 3, 5, and 6. I'm going to pop around a bit because Paul pops around a bit. But I will get to every verse, I promise you. Paul writes, Honor widows who are truly, and you should ask why a qualifier word there, truly widows. And now he's going to tell you what a true widow is. Look, she who is truly a widow is left all alone. She set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now here's an antithesis of that. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now look hard at that. What does that mean? Dead even while she lives? I'm going to explain it to you so that you have no unanswered questions. When you see that dead even while she lives, because Paul uses it a couple other times, it simply means that she has lived a life that proves that even though her body's alive, she is spiritually dead. She may be walking around and talking and eating all the things that your body does, but she's probably never been born again. She's dead even while she lives because her life has proved that she really didn't want anything to do with God or Jesus. She lived a self-what life? a self-indulgent life, rather than a Christ-serving life. The church's responsibility, according to this passage, is to look after the physical needs of those within their congregation who are unable to provide for themselves and have no other means of having their physical needs met. That is the church's responsibility. If you're here and you're a part of the congregation and you can't meet your basic needs, you must come see me. You must come see one of the elders because it would be our great privilege. This is a privilege for the church to be able to help you meet those needs because when we do, God smiles on that church. I want to be part of that congregation. If you can't meet your needs, don't be proud. Come see me in private. No one will know but the elders. And we will help you and make sure because we have 
we have resources specifically for you. It's called a benevolence fund. And it's set aside. Every good Bible-believing church who believes what I'm reading to you, they set aside a small little fund, resources, just for you. Those who are vulnerable and can't make it. And sometimes it just sits there because a lot of people are just too proud to come and ask. Don't be that way. If you need help, ask. We want to help you. But sometimes it can be taken advantage of. And that requires every church, every elder board to be shrewd. It requires us to have discernment skills to determine who it is that is verifiably vulnerable and who is not. Now, it just so happens that I experienced this very thing over the last uh, three to four weeks. Maybe God knew that I would be preaching on this passage and that I would need an illustration. Well, I sure have had one. Here's what's happened over the last three to four weeks that's been unique for me personally uh, from the past five years of experience. Um, Every year between the times of Thanksgiving to New Year, uh, we get calls from people all around the region, really, uh, asking for financial assistance. And usually it's in the 30s, that, that, that many people calling this little church, 30 some people calling. It's usually women that are calling because they've fallen on hard times and they need help. And it's good. They should call churches. So I get these calls and I usually field them by myself. And I talk with these people. And part of what I do is I ask them a series of questions so that I can learn more about what's truly happening in their life. Well, this year is unique because somehow my personal cell phone number ended up on a list somewhere on the mainland, quite a ways away, and I received about 25 phone calls this year on my cell phone from people who were asking for financial assistance. One of them was a male, and all the rest of them were female. And so I spoke with almost every one of them individually, and I had long conversations with some trying to find out how they ended up where they are, what has happened, do they have family, all kinds of questions. Do they have a local church that they attend? I have to ask these things. Do you see that? So when I talk, I started to learn that some of them had children, some of them were claiming to be widows, some of them claimed to have... um, fallen behind on their rent. Some of them claim we're living in motels for years. And so I started to realize that some of the stories weren't adding up. And some of the things that I was being told were conflicting with some of the things I was told earlier in the conversation. And so I went to the elders and I said, I need some help with this. We need to have some kind of a way to verify those who are truly vulnerable, not knowing that I'd be preaching on this in a few weeks. And so... We got together and we talked about it. And we've determined that the best way to do this is to have a conversation face-to-face. Invite them to come to our church if they are able. If they're not, I'll drive out to see them myself or one of the elders will. And if they're able to come to the church, my job is to have a conversation with them. Here's why I want to have this conversation. The greatest human need, hear this. If you're asleep, wake up. I want you to hear this more than anything else that I have to say to you. The greatest human need is not clean drinking water. It is not rent. It is not food. It is forgiveness of sins. Even if we met every one of these physical needs, guess what's still going to happen to every one of these people? They're eventually going to die. And so are you. The greatest need is what's going to happen after that moment that I die. 
And so my job as a gospel-loving, Jesus-fearing man is to bring people face-to-face with me so that I can give them their greatest need, which is the gospel. Now, sometimes the best way to get that across is giving them a physical need, giving them a drink of water, giving them some money to help them get caught up, helping pay a phone bill, giving them a gift card to help uh, pay for the the prescriptions that they need, which is exactly what I did two days ago with a woman who came and sat right there. I prayed with her, gave her a Bible, gave her a gospel track, introduced her to Jesus, and then gave her a $100 gift card to help pay for the prescriptions that her children needed. My job, what you should expect from a pastor of a local church, is to help meet the greatest physical, excuse me, the greatest need, which is Jesus by helping people to meet their physical needs. That's what we aim to do. So that's what we have written down now. That's what our job is as a local church. That's God's responsibility for every single congregation in the world. We care for those who are truly on their own. What I've discovered after many of the conversations with some of these people is when I ask, do you have anybody you can go to? Family members? Because as you're going to see here, that's the first order of business. Family. Usually what they'll say is, yeah, I can go to my family, but I've burned all those bridges. Or there's too big of a grudge there, and I just can't, can't see my sister, or I can't see my brother. Now, this is a complicated issue. If you're very conscientious and you're taking notes about questions you want to ask me later, one of them would be, what if there's abuse? And they can't go to see their family because of abuse. Good question. I'm so glad you asked that. Come on Wednesday night and we'll talk about it. See what I did there? The first order of business is not the local church. The first order of business for your vulnerable in your family is you. It's the family. Look at responsibility number two. Role number two. The family's responsibility. The family serves those who are of their own. Your own nuclear family. This is the biggest chunk of the text. Take a look at how clear Paul is about this. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first, not the church, them, learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Now it gets pretty serious. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, Paul, that's serious. We're going to talk about that in a minute. If any believing woman, he isolates women to show, look, men, if you can take care of your vulnerable family members, you need to do it. But then he takes it a bit further and he says, look, if you're a woman living alone and you have means, if any believing woman... I've lost my place. Has relatives, thank you, who are widows. Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened. Now, time out. If that sounds harsh to you, is this really a burden on the church? It's not... This is not unloving. When you look at why he says this, let the church not be burdened so that, here's the why, it, that's the church, may care for those who are what widows? 
You see what he's doing there? He's saying, look, if the church has to care for every single person that comes in off the street claiming to be vulnerable, it will not be able to care for those who are truly widows right there within their congregation. No, no, no. Those who are hurting need to first bury the hatchet with their estranged family members, lower their pride if they can, I know this is complex, and go and receive help from their own families. That is the first order of business. The church must care for those who belong to Christ, and they need to give special attention to those who are vulnerable among us. But we can't do it. We can't do it if the family isn't caring for those whom they are responsible to care for. Look more closely at verse 4. Verse 4, Paul is saying that if a widow has children or grandchildren, those of you who are a little older and you have older parents, I just lost my dad and this became very relevant right in front of our face a few weeks ago. Those of you who are children, you have older parents. Verse 4 is saying that if your elderly mother or father passes away, leaving a widow or a widower, your responsibility as a child or a grandchild is to care for those in your own family. And how serious does Paul take this? Look at verse 8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for members of his own household in that days, in those days, Everyone was living together. Grandma, grandpa, all of them were in the same household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Church, here's why you're worse than an unbeliever if you won't take care of those who are in your own household. Do you remember what state you were in when God found you? Let me remind you. You were helpless and homeless. Oh, sure, you had a roof over your head. But an eternal home, you were going nowhere. You could not help yourself. And what did your father in heaven do? He adopted you as his own son or daughter and invited you to his own table and fed you and keeps feeding you. And he's saying, if you know and receive that from me and you won't take care of the helpless and homeless and widows and vulnerable in your own household, have you even partaken of the salvation that is so great? You're worse than an unbeliever. That's what he's saying. This is pretty serious, isn't it? In the eyes of God. According to God, the first order of business for your vulnerable is you, your family. Every true Christian needs to demonstrate the greatness of giving by being able to give to those who are vulnerable in their own household. Before we move on to the final role of responsibility, can I tell you something that is absolutely critical to this message? It's about giving, sacrificial giving, because that's what we're really talking about here, giving to others. There are three kinds of giving that you need to be aware of. Three kinds that I've seen right here in this church. Here they are up on the screen. Look at this. The first kind of giving is grudge giving. The second kind of giving is duty giving. And the third kind is thanksgiving. And here's what each of these three kinds of giving says. See if this resonates in your heart. The first one, grudge giving, says, I have to. Duty giving says something a little different. Duty giving says, I ought to. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving says, I want to. This is absolutely critical when it comes to your own family. What, may I ask you, ought to be the condition of the heart to those who are followers of Jesus? When you look at those who are vulnerable in your own extended family, should it be duty or grudge? I have to, ought to. God tells me I have to, so I better. Is that how he responded to you when you were in need? 
Or should it be, I get to, and so I want to, because God gave to me when I was still a sinner. God did for me when I was hopelessly in despair. Those who are truly followers of Christ know we get to, we love to, we see it as the greatest privilege to be able to give a little bit of that which God has given to us. Right? The final role that Paul talks about with Pastor Timothy is the role of the individual. What responsibility does each individual have if he or she becomes vulnerable? You don't know. This could be you tomorrow. Does anybody know what tomorrow holds? I don't. You could be one of the vulnerable tomorrow. What responsibility do you have? Do you live off the charity of the church, your family, or the government, some institution? Sometimes you have to, but is that God's desire for you? Take a look at the final thing that Paul says here. Let a widow be enrolled. Enrolled. What does that mean? Can you put that on the screen, the next part of the passage there, Frank? Let a widow be enrolled. He means in the list of those who are truly widows. So Timothy's keeping a roster of those who are truly widows. And he's saying, let a widow make her name on that list if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints. Are you starting to get a picture of what she loves most in her life? She's cared for the afflicted. Where do you suppose she's doing that, by the way? And has devoted herself to every good work timeout. He's painting a picture of a woman who has spent her life loving Jesus. She loves Jesus so much that she works all of these different things in the church, in a ministry. Washing the feet of saints just simply means she's humble enough and she's serving the church. She loves and is devoted to Christ. And why? Because she's truly a widow. She has nothing. Remember verse 5? She set her hope on God because God is all she has. Right? But look at younger widows. Look at what Paul says to younger widows. Refuse to enroll Younger widows. Why? Because when their passions draw them away from Christ. Christ is all I have, but there's some competing desire here. When their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. If we don't stop right now, someone going to misunderstand this one. Okay, listen very closely to what this means. He's not talking about a sinful desire to be married. Being married is not a sinful desire at all. He's talking about simply a divided devotion. Because when someone is married, I have a temporal wife here. Ashley will not be my wife forever, all of eternity. Christ will be my bride, or excuse me, my bridegroom forever. And I will be married to him. She's temporal, and I am temporal to her. And so what he's saying is, when you're living in this temporal body, if you can do it where you are totally devoted to Christ, that is ideal. Stay single, he will show you later. Stay single. Become a missionary. Give all of your energy to him. But if you have to be married, fine. Just know that your resources, your energy is going to be divided. Continue reading and then I'll show you all of where he says that. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. 
So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. All that means they're starting to give in to the temptations to do those things you just read in that list. They're already doing them. Here's what this means. What Paul says God desires for younger widows more than anything else, for those, the individual, what he desires for their role of responsibility when they become vulnerable, he desires that they commit all of the remainder of their life's energy, everything they have, to serving Christ because he is all they have. Take a look at where else he says this. He wrote this to another congregation, Corinth. He says, now to the unmarried and to the what? Say it. He's talking to them, the vulnerable. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, in other words, this desire to be married and to have sexual relationship is so passionate in them, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Listen very closely to me. Singleness is a tremendous blessing from God because you get to live like the Apostle Paul. You get to commit everything you have to storing up for yourself treasure in heaven. Everything you have to Christ. Whereas if you get married, your devotion will be divided. Now, these aren't my words. Look at where he says this. Same church, same letter. Look, 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to be free from concern. Now, look at what he says here. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Do you see the freedom there? But the married man, well, he's concerned about worldly things. I think a better translation is their temporal things, things that are not going to last forever. How to please his what? His wife and his interests are divided. Got to please my wife a little bit when I go home, but ultimately I want to please the Lord. It's divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about worldly, again, it's more temporal things, how to please her husband. Paul finishes like this, and I love this. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay down any restraint upon you. In other words, he's saying there's liberty here. But to promote good order and to secure, say this with me, church, your undivided devotion to the Lord. That, my dear friends, is the responsibility and role of every individual. Undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul would say to you, if you're single, if you're single and you're able to stay that way and you don't feel this deep, Sense that I just, I, I want to be married? Stay single. Serve the Lord all your life. Go overseas. Bring the gospel to an unreached people group. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. That is a life well spent. But there's liberty here. If you see within your heart this desire, no, I'm still young enough. I still want to be married and have a family. And you're widowed. Paul says there is freedom. But examine, oh, listen, Examine those ruling passions deep within your heart. Bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that I truly desire most? What is it that has won the, most, the highest affection in my heart? Is it a husband? Is it a wife? Is it something else other than you? All I'm saying is, 
Ask him. Ask him what it is that's ruling your heart and let him guide where it is that he takes you for the rest of your life. Church, as I said, I could talk on this for a lot more time. There's so much that the scriptures have to say about this. That means you've got to come back on Wednesday and ask all those confusing things that have popped up in your mind. The big idea that I'd hope to get across to you is just one singular thing. Christ has charged his church to be charitable to the verifiably vulnerable. We need to do our job to see who it is that really needs our help because we have resources to help them. And if that's you, I want to help you. If there's vulnerable within your own family, widows, people who need a home, people who are less fortunate, you are required by God to care for the members of your own family. And it is a great privilege My hope to leave you with here today in this final sermon in chapter 5 is simply this. I hope that you will come to the conclusion in your own heart of hearts that it truly is better to give than to receive. Do you really believe that? It's proven in your own household. Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus asking that you would help us to examine our hearts to see for sure whether or not we really believe what we say and just flips off our tongue so easily. Is it really better to give than to receive? Jesus gave everything and he was filled with joy. And he says to us, my hope is that my joy will be yours. Oh, help us to learn how great a privilege it is to give of our life, give of our resources, give the spare bedroom, give of our money, give of our food to those who are vulnerable among us. What a privileged people we are here in Beach Haven, New Jersey. Help us, God. To follow the example of your son who gave up everything for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.